Hello, it's Zach Rhodes and I here today on Sunday, and uh, I have varying titles for our operation. Um, Harm Reduction Stories on Sundays with Zach and Stanton is one of them. And what we are doing is reviewing all the stories that you never hear. Um, it, we tell you, and the data show, that the typical recovery story is a microscopic minority of all the cases that occur. A very few people decide that they're an alcoholic or addict, uh, join AA or go to rehab, and decide never to consume a psychoactive substance again. That, I won't say it virtually never happens, but it's quite a small percentage of Americans who encounter addictive problems or substance use problems. And we never hear the other stories. And, and why is that? Um, and we've reviewed examples of that. Bob Weir of the Grateful Dead talks about how um, he's almost afraid to give his opinion. His opinion is that people have control of themselves. He had a bad painkiller habit and drank badly. And now he uses other means to control pain, but he still drinks wine and he still occasionally takes the painkiller. We talk about Drew Barrymore, who ostensibly had to reject her lifetime addict identity in order to get on with her life, which she did by her early 20s and became an incredibly successful Hollywood persona, as well as a mother. And Yet, and she has to announce that she's not in recovery because she drinks wine, and yet she sort of endorses recovery. And then we talked about an even harder situation to classify Elton John, where Elton John's personal narratives when he's off guard don't mention rehab, the 12 steps. Um, they talk about purpose and music and Ryan White and how he reoriented his life rather quickly once he got focused on what it was he wanted for himself. And so we're filling in the gaps. We're filling in the gaps with all the stories like Bob Weir's, Elton John's, Drew Barrymore's, that don't carry on the standard narrative, which is actually, and I believe, destroying us. Mm. So we're performing a public service. Now, um, every, every one of those people could be said to have trauma. Uh, Drew Barrymore, Bob Weir, and Elton John, on the one hand, yet they're far from deprived people. I mean, Drew Barrymore grew up in a well-off family. She made a ton of money as a child. She comes from American acting nobility. It's true, Bob Weir was on the street when he was 16. He didn't go to high school, let alone college. But on the other hand, he became part of a very tight-knit organic group, the Grateful Dead, who nurtured him, who made him, I don't, I don't know if I can say one of the greatest musicians, contemporary musicians, but certainly a very talented and appreciated artist. And he had a structure and they made quite a bit of money. And of course, Elton John was the leading recording artist in the world for years, for decades. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> He came from a middle-class family. He fought off um, 
his biological parents were not nurturing to him, but he had a supportive grandmother. He had a good a stepfather. Uh, he's a talented. He got good musical training. He was gay at a time when that was a difficult road to navigate. But <clears throat> is he really an example of a traumatized human being? And that's where we're switching off to today. Um, we're looking at another part of the population, the less world icon part of the population. Um, we're going to turn to a person whose life doesn't have as much past or current support. And Zach's going to lead that little discussion. And Zach knows a little bit about that part of the world. I mean, it's not only I mean, middle class people are advantaged in overcoming addiction. It's people with supportive families with good skills. But uh, a majority of all groups of people overcome addiction. Um, Zach happens to be involved in school work in New England, in Vermont. <clears throat> Vermont and Maine and New Hampshire is one hotspot for uh, opioid deaths, along with urban centers like Baltimore, Washington, D.C., the industrial, burned out industrial Midwest, and Appalachia. And so Zach is a person who works with people who don't have anything like the privileges or even the talents of Drew Barrymore or Bob Weir or Elton John. And he's going to talk about somebody who had to maybe pull himself up more by his bootstraps, who did encounter problems and who nonetheless follows the same developmental path towards, you can call it recovery, we'll just talk, call it life growth. Zach, do you want to jump in now with your case for this Sunday? I do, with a little bit of trepidation because this person is, is famous in some sense, infamous in others. And I also, um, I'm going to tread lightly when talking about his story. One, because I maybe don't know as much about his background as you've known about the background of some of the other uh, topics we've mentioned, subjects that we've mentioned. And on the other hand, I don't know if you'll love the ending to this, but I should say it's, it's uh, akin to the Elton John story, elevated maybe a level. I'll go on with it. His name's Stephen Gordon. Uh, people know him contemporarily as Steve-O, the man who created the Jackass series. And, you know, it's kind of one of those things you don't want to write home to mom about. That's how you got famous. He did attend the University of Miami for some time, but got nearly a zero GPA there and dropped out. And he joined the Ringling Brothers Circus educational track. So he wanted to perform in the circus and actually didn't quite make it in that track either. And so he, uh, he wound up performing as a clown for some circus somewhere. And he started sending his stunts and his, what would you call it, clownsmanship into different magazines and he would record these videotapes and send them in until somebody picked him up and they said, hey, you don't really make a great like magician or clown or really great anything except the stunts you're doing are pretty funny. It's kind of funny when you're hurting yourself. So there he was hired to uh, make a Hollywood movie. First, it was sort of a documentary style with he and the people that he had been around for a long time. And he would do stunts like pushing himself down a hill in a shopping cart um, and that's probably one of the more mild, I don't know if I'm able to mention some of the things that he did, um, but they were acts that you, normal human beings wouldn't do. It's sort of like 
It's sort of like a, a lower class David Blaine or something like that. It's one of those things, how could a human being do this to himself? And so he got reinforced a lot because as people know, the Jackass movies 1, 2, and Jackass 3D made multi-millions of dollars and made him a lot of money. And But he wasn't really being reinforced for anything truly purposeful that he was doing. He was being reinforced for the destruction that he was causing himself and even to other people. And at the time, he was, this is 2001 to 2003 when the first movie was being made and 2003 when it was released, he was doing a lot of different drugs and really a lot of different destructive activities. And cocaine being his favorite drug, but he also drank and did cocktails of drugs all the time. He mentioned in, a, in an interview that he was so into just ditching reality and becoming just having a sense of oblivion instead that he once uh, did a pile of what he was told was cocaine and he believed took people at their word that he knew that there was blood in it that he knew had been infected with HIV. That's how desperate he said he was for the drug. Now that sounds like it sort of panders to the story of you know, 12 steps in recovery, like the drug had a hold of him or something like that. And he did go to a rehab and he did in 2008, he declares his sober date and he's been abstinent from drugs ever since. Okay, in the meantime, he had this drug bout and he kind of fell off. Nobody really knew him anymore, except for maybe that, that idiot in those movies. He, he, he rose back to fame with comedy. So he began doing stand-up comedy and hosting a podcast. And in his comedy and podcast, he mentioned these sexual escapades that he went on. And this, these are sexual experiences that he thought were, yeah, over the top, but he kind of felt like they're normal and okay. And other comics, and the comedy world is not exactly a tame place. It's, you know, you go to a club, you're not getting a PG show. They would stop and tell him, this, that's kind of a lot, man. That sounds pretty, that, that's a pretty extreme what you're doing. Until he realized, oh, I've sort of transferred my problem. I don't, maybe I'm not doing drugs anymore, but I'm still kind of destructive. He said that he had a sex addiction. Now here's where it gets interesting. He decided that he would go completely abstinent from sexual, all sexual experiences for at least a year. And then he went more than a year with no sex at all. So he went from somebody who craved, thrived on sexual experiences, enjoyed them, albeit they were destructive, to someone who didn't have it at all. And when he was interviewed post abstinence phase, he admitted that's probably not something I would ever recommend to anybody. It was kind of like anorexia, but for sex. He felt completely deprived more when he was abstinent from sexual experiences than he did when he was having them, albeit destructively. So <clears throat> recently, I'll get the millennial vote here. I was listening to a comedy podcast that's pretty popular among the like 20-year-old to 40-year-old cohorts. It's called Tiger Belly with a comedian named Bobby Lee. And Bobby Lee's a, an AA guy. And he was having him on to talk about his, his addictions. Steve-O started this conversation when he was being interviewed by saying, uh, he was being asked about his experience in rehab and drugs and stuff. And he said, yeah, I did go to rehab. I don't really know how much of it I took with me. Plus, you know, people who go to AA, he cited the statistic, about 5% of them get better. I just know that 
I, I'm not really up for drugs or drinking anymore. And I think they're kind of destructive to me. Sex was really my biggest addiction. And I had to figure out for myself that sex, food, things like that, you, you can't really abstain from them. What's it helping? You're, you're laser focused on the sexual experience uh, being the problem, but you're ignoring the real sense of the problem. So he admitted that he, since then, has sexual experiences. He's engaged, uh, but he lost the destruction. And he's not just engaged to a person. He's much more engaged with life. His comedy is going well. He's figuring out how to make relationships, not just with women, but with all sorts of people. He's, you can hear it anywhere when he's interviewed. He says that he never understood sex as something that you do with a person to make, to help make meaning in life. He understood it as something like a narcissist would understand it. Like, <clears throat> like um, he enjoyed the manipulation of people so that he could take them home at the end of the night. And he said, quote, I guess I grew up. And that's when I heard that, I thought of you right away. And I thought of our book, Outgrowing Addiction. He's 46 now. Uh, usually when we talk about people growing up, we talk about aging from childhood into adulthood and sometimes from adulthood into slightly later adulthood. But 46, I guess, is an okay age to be feeling grown up. Now, it's not clear. Just, just remember development. I just sent you something from the New York Times. Yeah, yeah. Where it said, uh, experts tell parents not to overworry the fact that their children miss a developmental phase. Yeah. And here's the key yeah. quote. Development is a lifetime process. Absolutely. So this is a person who had struggles just going into adulthood in the first place. And once he got a little recognition and got a little piece of connection, it was sort of illusory, right? I mean, he was in Hollywood. He was doing strange stunts. He didn't really appreciate things about himself. These are things you can go into the archives and read him say. And he was convinced that he needed to kick drugs. Like that was a huge part of the problem. It's not clear to me that he really still believes that drugs are the problem. But what is clear is that even though he said what he has said about sex addictions, food addictions, what he calls process addictions, he understands that it's not about kicking the activity or kicking the object of an addiction. It's about incorporating what you want to do into a, you know, an excellent and balanced life. It doesn't have to be perfect, just has to be meaningful and has to be connected in the right kinds of ways. I will say this, he said at the end of this interview that I'm talking about, and people can go look it up, it's the latest episode of Tiger Belly with Bobby Lee. He mentioned, if I had to do it again, I'd probably do it differently. And then he talked about what I, I think it's kind of a recovery tool. It's like a intersection between harm reduction and recovery kind of a tool of concentric circles of harm where you get to choose uh, the object of your problem. So whether that is drugs or whether that's the decisions you make around drugs, and that's kind of the bullseye, the red zone that you don't want to be in. Then there's a yellow zone around that that you say, you know, I've seen this movie before. I know that when I start doing these kinds of things, I'm headed some way and maybe I better think about alternatives. And then there's a green zone where you're realizing, yep, this is where I want to be. And he mentioned that that's how he would, if somebody were going into this, uh, into the life cycle, feeling like they're overwhelmed and addicted, that he would recommend them do that, set their own goals. 
I think he fell short of actually saying, I don't recommend sobriety for everybody. But I really, really believe that that's what he meant. I can't prove it, but I think it's what he meant. Eager to hear your thoughts about that. Well, I think it's, that's a really great tool he describes. Um, he, there's a bullseye in the middle of doing something that you know is self-destructive. Um, you don't want to go there again, but there's all kinds of, you know, you don't want to shoot up all night. You don't want to, you know, whatever kinds of weird sex he was doing. Um, but you don't want to give up. You can't give up eating if you're anorexic. You don't want to give up intimate relationships. You don't want to give up all substances, really. I mean, it's rare that people do that. Um, but you take something that it's not directly targeted on your former addiction. I mean, it seemed, it would be strange, you know, for Drew Barrymore to go out all night and snort cocaine, <laughs> which is what she did when she was in her early teens. Um, Bob Weir isn't going to, you know, take a nonstop bunch of pills and wash them down with alcohol. It's by defining your goal as being more normalized, his imagery of getting farther away from the target in the middle of the bullseye, and the way he describes it is a yellow zone and a green zone, pulling farther back from it is a way of getting perspective on it. And it's, it's a, a graphic version of harm reduction, actually. You know, I'm always thinking about how it sort of seems uh, people tell me that when I tell my story and then I and I say that I don't necessarily recommend abstinence and of course you can just build a balanced life way, you know you can continue to use drugs or you cannot you have to it, people say it's brave and I do think about how if you're part of the in you know intellectual or influential milieu then you kind of have to say things responsibly. And, and I do believe that Steve-O thinks that the responsible thing to say is that if you're doing drugs and it's destructive in your life, you should stop doing drugs and that the you know standard models are going to help you. I'm not, I, I'm getting, to, we're getting to that point again, like we did in the Drew Barrymore story where there's just a, a last strand of dissonance that keeps people from saying what is completely true in their minds. But he's leaving open, I think, by his description, an alternative model for thinking about it. He, he's obviously not talking about being powerless. He's obviously not talking about um, complete abstinence. He's, and he's talking about building a whole life. And why I like this case, and in regards to my introduction, um, Steve-O represents an example of somebody who achieved recognition doing something that was already kind of self-destructive. I mean, nobody watching this video wants their child to grow up to be Steve-O. Yeah. You right. know, going around, you know, driving nails into his hand or something as a exactly. form of getting attention. Yeah. Nobody does that. You know, uh, Bob Weir, Elton John, and Drew Barrymore all had pro-social gifts and activities. Right. And I interpret that as being that Steve O's coming from a little farther back psychologically and in terms of a place in life. And yet, so he had a stranger, longer journey. And to me, that's a little bit parallel to somebody you or anybody might encounter um, in, in an area in Vermont or 
in an inner city who just doesn't have the life wherewithal. As I say, Drew Barrymore could be considered to have a traumatic upbringing, but it's a little hard to think about her exactly as an abuse victim when she had so many positives in her life. How, and you're a person who deals with people who have fewer positives in life, and yet they still aspire to something. I mean, mm. I see Steve-O as being somebody, in a strange way, he's, he wanted attention, and in a strange way, he aspired to greatness, but the only route towards becoming great was inherently self-destructive. So taking drugs on top of, you know, you know jumping off of cliffs, it's kind of in the same ballpark. And so I guess I wanted to turn it back to you to talk about how do you think about helping people achieve a purpose when they're starting out at a lower base rate and where some of the paths that they're taking to achieve attention are ones that, you know, you wouldn't recommend. I mean, if you had Steve-O as a client, it'd be hard for you to say, you know, hurting your and distorting and uh, damaging your body, I, I'm just going to have a hard time as a clinician saying, well, you have a purpose in life, go for it. Hmm. I always like to do something with the children I work with. I do this with adults too, but it could sound patronizing if it's not the right context. I have people visualize what their goals are now in the near future and sort of the long term, three to five years, let's say, and then reverse engineer those goals. So someone like Steve-O, maybe he skipped the line a little bit. Like if he was achieving, if he was seeking greatness, he didn't really think about the steps that would, that would get him there and in some sort of a reasonable way. He thought, I want this now. Um, so I always think about J.D. Vance in Hillbilly Elegy, how he came from a broken home and sort of idolized the Obama's values. He thought about Barack Obama and thought, this is a guy who achieved greatness. And look, he's from this, you know, small town, impoverished family. Hey, kind of like me. And I wonder what the steps were to getting there. And he sort of retracted those steps and figured out what did it take for this guy to overcome things. You can kind of, it's easy to say, I'm lost. I have nothing. I need something. I need to be great. I need something now. I need a quick fix for it. If you can sort of relax, no matter your circumstances, and say, things aren't that horrible. I mean, what if I do nothing at all? I'll just be exactly where I am now. So what can I do to get slightly better? Then that sort of slightly better, if you could do it, and if you can convince yourself each day moving forward that you're doing something successful, even if it's, you know, smallest tie in your shoes in the morning, you can trick your mind into saying, I'm doing something positive and I'm consistently doing it. And I think that kind of positivity compounds over time. It has for me and as for a lot of the kids I work with and it, it does for a lot of people, you know, greatness happens kind of quick when you're willing to take it slow. I like to, you know, I break everything into steps, uh, but fewer than 12 steps <laughs> as a clinical approach. It sounds like the first thing you're doing with the person is accepting them. You're saying, well, I see you're a valuable person. Um, I know you want to be valued. I value you. A second thing that you're inclined to do, I know, is to look for talents they have. I mean, even when Steve-O was doing crazy shit, he had talent. Yeah. I mean, he had physical abilities. He was clever, which came out when he was a comedian. Oh, yeah. And let me say, 
I'm so sorry. I was, I, you reminded me, I wanted to say this and you're hitting it right now, but I, when I look back at his movies, I think I'm not impressed at all of his stunts, but what I am impressed with is in the, like the outtakes and in the, in the middle of his stunts, he's very funny and very clever and has a, you know, an interesting intelligence to him. And I'm always impressed with that. Yeah. So anyway. So you were helping him identify the essence of his skills and the part of it that wasn't self-destructive. Yeah. And then the third thing you're doing is you're telling the person that you like them having a purpose and a desire to be, do something important. That's something you'll never reject. Um, and you're trying to keep that kernel, but refocus it. And one of the ways that you do that is to say, well, let's be a little more patient and a little more steps towards life goals and skills oriented in getting the kind of recognition and the fulfillment of the purpose that you have. So you're taking a drive a person has um, and helping them convert it into a positive life force. There used to be a sociologist whose approach was to say that people in the drug world were already manifesting um, a set of skills. I mean, you know, survival, selling drugs, preserving your life, sometimes living off nothing. They actually developed a range of life skills and let's try and build off of those skills, build that into a platform that can support a real positive life, a sustainable life, having a family and going into the future. And so, you know, we don't want to give the impression that um, self-cure, um, harm reduction, non-abstinent recovery is only the province of people, you know, who are, I mean, Bob Weir, uh, Drew Barrymore, and Elton John, they're kind of at the top of the world. Each in their own way. I mean, they're on, they're, they're in the upper one-tenth of one percent. This isn't an elite occupation. Um, in a life process program, people you deal with in your other work, they're, they're not going to become uh, Elton John's and Drew Barrymore's and Bob Weir's. And yet, there are valuable, normal life goals that they can achieve and you identify with their, you see even some of their negative acting out, um, for example, kids trying to get attention as a way of expressing a desire for something positive that you feel you can translate in a positive direction. Mm. Yep, well said. Um, so this is our uh, Sunday Tales of Harm Reduction all the stories that don't fit into the neat bailiwicks and the neat little cores that we're constantly told about. I mean, Steve-O is generally not held up as an icon probably for little children and recovery people, but we, I think the reason you picked him as a case is, as you described, you kind of liked him. He's appealing. Um, he has a certain something that drew you to him, and now you're kind of happy in a personal way when you hear him express 
that at a higher level, like his bullseye concept. We might yeah. get him into the whole harm reduction therapy business. So uh, Steve-O is not a likely icon for anybody, uh, parents, teachers, or harm reduction or clinicians, but we're giving a shout out to Steve-O this Sunday. That's right. I hope so. Steve-O, you can write in if you want to. If not, that's okay too. <laughs> but uh... And we're asking people at some point, I don't know how we're going to get the feedback loop in, we're going to take regular, talking about regular people telling regular stories, we're going to ask people, you and I have heard many of these stories. I mean, I've been around a long time. People write me stories all the time about how they deviated from the true past. Um, and we want some people like that to call in or write in and we'll tell their stories sometime. Yeah, we'll figure out a way to do this because it's not like we have a lack of questions or people telling you what their stories are like. So I'll, we'll put the we'll put the plug out that if people want to tell their story either with us on the podcast or to write in so that we can tell it and give our two cents, then we'll do that soon. I'll let people know how we'll incorporate that. Have we uh, come to the end of our happy little Sunday morning here on um, uh, harm reduction stories with Zach and Stan? That, that's it for me. I never in a million years thought I would be spending a Sunday morning talking about Steve-O from Jackass in such a positive light, but here I am. And I bet he never thought that that would happen either. Any last two cents you want to add in? Um, our next, the next session, we're going to talk a little bit, uh, go down a little bit of a different path. We're going to talk about a fictional uh, version of harm reduction um, and anti-trauma theory. And uh, we're going to talk about uh, the TV series, the Netflix series, The Good Place. All right. Catch you folks next Sunday.